Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Got Mental Health Podcast. I am your co-host, Rachel Cove. I am a multi-passionate entrepreneur, author, artist, mother, and certified recovery coach. I'm your co-host, Arthur Mogilevsky, entrepreneur, girl dad, animal activist, and owner of AM Healthcare, a premier substance abuse and mental health treatment program. With the collective experience of 21 years working in the mental health field, we are excited to bring to you a safe and fun place to talk all things mental health. We will be interviewing experts, thought leaders, entrepreneurs, and professionals in the entertainment industry to better educate, inform, and inspire our community to have positive mental wealth. Welcome, everybody, to the Got Mental Health Podcast. I am your co-host, Rachel Cove, along with my co-host, Argolevsky. Argolevsky, Rachel, let's what? get it right. I just can't get it right. <laughs> We are here in the studio today with Angela Carrillo, who is the owner and CEO of Brass Tax Recovery. Angela is a certified intervention professional practitioner of neuro-linguistic programming, certified professional coach, and a certified PIVOT relational coach. Angela brings attachment and trauma-informed solutions to clients and families. She has served as a member of the board of directors of the Women's Association for Addiction Treatment and has also held board positions within various chapters of the Los Angeles International Association of Eating Disorders. Angela has a BA in psychology with a minor in addiction studies. Brass Tax Recovery is a culmination of Angela's personal and professional experience. She's developed the coach to intervene CTI TM family system intervention technique. It is within the model that families are given the missing pieces to carve a new way to educating themselves while supporting those they love. Welcome to Got Mental Health Podcast, Angela. Welcome, Thank welcome. you. I, you know, I've known you for a very, very long time, and I didn't even know half of you're a fascinating human being. Oh, I mean, this is the feeling is quite mutual. I mean, unbelievable. Thank so, you for joining us. Yeah. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah. So tell me the story on how you started Brass Tax Recovery. So Brass Tax Recovery was started, I founded originally with a business partner, and now I'm the sole owner. And it was really founded on the fundamental, I think, premise and belief that families needed more support. Families needed a little more support than sometimes a treatment center could give them. Not that treatment centers aren't amazing at supporting families. They are. <clears throat> And also there's only so much time in a day. And a lot of times what happens with a family is while a client, one of their loved ones is in a treatment process or in a treatment episode, there are things going on at home in the family or thoughts or fears and insecurities that can unknowingly to that family system actually interfere or sabotage the treatment process. Mm -hmm. What inspired you to open up a, uh, an organization that was focused on that? In all honesty, I don't necessarily know originally that I was inspired. I think I was a little dis disencouraged, really, uh, about the mental health world in general. And I had my history was outside of the mental health industry. I've been in the industry now for 15 years, yet once... I was introduced to the concept of supporting families, and mine wasn't supported. Mm. My family system is riddled with mental health and addiction, and a lot of it is untreated. So once I was exposed to the work that you can do with families, something just kind of caught on fire inside of me. And, and I saw that this family can get better. 
What are some of the signs of an untreated family in your experience? I think the definition untreated is vast, but if we were to narrow it down for the sake of this conversation, I think untreated family systems generally will have codependent behaviors in them, enabling behaviors, but I'm also careful to say to a parent, I'm not just going to say, hey, you're codependent, you need to let go of your kid. This is a parent, and the most important thing in their life is their child. So the way that we invite them to really look at how they may be enabling unhealthy behaviors versus supporting healthy behaviors is, is I think, a careful process for all of us as professionals. But I would say some of them is enabling. It's when a parent is actually, it's a, it's a cognitive dissonance in a way where a parent is actually making decisions to help their child in ways that go against their parental belief system. So they're doing things where they're saying, hey, I know I shouldn't have done this, but they do. And they're doing it because they think it's going to help. But what it actually does is it doesn't strengthen the child. It strengthens the child's unhealthy behavior patterns. And I think that's tricky stuff for parents. We have to help them understand that. And it requires patience. Would you agree that parental styles and approaches stem from their own experiences with their own parents and going back and forth? you know, from a generational standpoint? A hundred percent. And I also think that that conversation and that educational point is critical. If a family system is going to get better, often I'll have a parent say, Angela, we don't need the help our kid does. And, and I say, I understand that. I'm going to counter that and challenge you and, and ask you if you're going to ask your loved one, often your child who's an adult or even an adolescent, to look at themselves, to look at their behavioral patterns and their coping skills, I'm going to invite you to look at your own. I think that most people, including myself, all of us are operating from belief systems and values that we were taught through our childhood. And those transgenerational messages and how we emotionally regulate are then being carried into our adult life. So in other words, how I react or respond to anything in the world, people, places, or things, is coming from the coping skills that I learned through my childhood. So would you say that a lot of your approach comes from the place of let's revisit where your childhood childhood and what it was like in order for us to be able to kind of reconfigure that on as to how we're going to approach our own your own child so within my scope of practice right coming from intervention case management and family coaching i'm absolutely going to introduce that conversation and we talk about it we talk about what it looked like for them it's Mm -hmm. actually one of their assignments that they do the clinical team that's doing the family therapy is going to really delve into that. But yes, it's important. You know, I, I don't want them to, to look back. You know, I don't want them to look at the past and then stay stuck on it. Yet it's important for them to look at the past and look at what did they learn from that past experience that is currently dictating the way they're making decisions in this current one. I absolutely love that. I often tell people we have to visit the past to understand the present. And we have to understand the present to create a new future. And I, I'm curious, when you're working with families and you challenge them to look at their own behaviors, <laughs> are they initially defensive or are they usually, like, what are, what, how are they responding to that? That's such a huge question, I right? I know. 
It's so huge and it's so mm. important and I'm grateful that you asked it. I was just speaking with a father this morning actually on the way over here. I was speaking with a husband and a wife and the dad and I were having a conversation because he was feeling impatient around something and and he has his own stressors, right, going on in in the world. So it depends. It depends. I think that's our job as mental health professionals to understand how we're going to language certain ideologies and certain concepts so that that parent, that human, it's human. It's a human being that I'm working with. How is that human going to receive this information in a way that's going to invite them into the solution, mm. right? Because if I offend them and they feel they need to defend their character then I'm not doing what I need to do, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not helping them enter a process that's actually going to get them to the result. I tell them all the time, I have one goal. The good news for me is I only have one goal, and that's helping your loved one get better. So if my focus is, and, and that's your goal, that's why you called me, then let's talk about what we need to do, what solutions are going to get us there. But the caveat or challenge is shame and guilt, Shame is about me, guilt is about my behavior, and helping them understand the differentiation between the shame and the guilt and the self and the behavior, and what does that look like for them as individuals, and how do we support them in understanding where that shame and guilt, which prevents families from getting better, is playing out in dysfunctional behavioral patterns that's contributing to an unhealthy family system. Angela. <laughs> that she solved is the code. so good. I cannot <laughs> wait for people to hear this information. Yeah. I think we're all recovering from generations of you keep what's going on in the family in the family and what the parents say is the authority. Like it's what you have to do, right? And I feel like I'm now even waking up to all adults have their flaws. All adults mm -hmm. have something going on, right? So I'm it's not sure what you're speaking of. Yeah, except for I Arthur. No problems. <laughs> I mean <laughs> when when you're dealing with a client who is struggling with substance abuse issues, mm -hmm. aren't they usually can you explain what the identified patient is? I hate that term. I hate that term. Why right? do you because hate it? Because for me, the identified patient is the family system. Right, and that's why and, I brought it up. Right, and in all honesty, the identified patient, the identified patient is the family system, the family system's family, the culture. I mean, there's so many contributing factors to why we believe what we believe. I mean, you go back generations ago, you don't talk about your personal stuff. That's why I brought that up because I right? think I think we're all reorganizing. Yes that way of living. Yes. Oh, it's okay for me to talk about this. Oh, my family is not perfect. And I think when there's someone that's struggling with substance abuse, they're usually like, okay, well, if we just fix them, if I just fix my kid and I send him to these doctors and I send him to this treatment center and I send him to this therapist and I put him on medication, he's done. I don't have to look at myself. But what you're saying is the parent needs to start looking at themselves. Yes. And that is really challenging. And I say to parents all the time, like, I'm going to ask you to give me permission to have a conversation that you may not want to talk to me again. <laughs> right? Like, I say it to him all the time, you may when we hang up this call, you may never want to speak with me again. And I'm okay with that. Because my job is to help you help your kid help themselves. Right? Yeah, 
I think I think it's and I and I and I I never try to go into this into a conversation with a family member with like I'm sorry that I'm going to be brutally honest with you. Yeah. Because the reality is is that nobody has been up until this point. And I think that it's so important. I love that you said that. I think it's so important that you are brutally honest with these parents or the families or the friends or whoever's involved in this system, right? Because they haven't heard it yet. And a lot of the times I think they truly appreciate it when you're done with it all. Whether they agree with you or they or they don't. They totally appreciate they it. They so appreciate it because for them First of all, and I'm, excuse me for it, you call them out, out on their shit, right? Which, don't mo- say shit. sorry. Um, it's, it's, it's a word in the vocabulary. It actually exists. <laughs> I, we made it into a cuss word, I, which I don't think it is. Um, anyways. Sorry. Yell at the producers. Um, so, but I, but I, I really appreciate that you said that. And, and I don't think we have to be apologetic in, by any means for being honest with people, especially with families, because this is a life or death type of situation that we're dealing with. This is something where you can lose your child, you can lose your loved one through this process, whether it be drugs or alcohol or suicide or any other things. I mean, this is a very risky thing and we don't have time for niceties. We have to be that direct. So I, I truly appreciate that. I, I I always get asked the question, how long is this going to take? Like, will I will they be fixed in 30 days? Like, can I do it in two weeks and just be on my way? What do you tell the families that start bringing up timelines and expectations for those timelines? A timeline, a, a lot of times what I ask families when they, when they ask me, how long is this going to take, right? Um, well, how long did it take to get here? Mm. What do we have to do to make it change? Well, what have you been doing to keep it the same? Right. These are questions that I have for them because I want them to understand when I'm honest with them. It's my perception. I I mean, you know, your perception is yours. This is my perception. I just want you to know what my perception is based on. Right. I'm going to educate them on that, on the experience I have. I'm also going to say the reason I'm sharing this with you is because, God forbid, something happen. I don't want you to call me and ask me why I didn't say this. Sure. That's so it's point. my responsibility to share with you. It's your choice to do what you want. It's your family. But if you're calling me and you're asking me what I think you should do, I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to tell you why. So... I think this is frightening for any of us, though, because the way that we defend and protect ourselves, those cognitive defenses, those behavioral patterns, those survival skills we've learned, when those get challenged, that creates vulnerability. And it's very hard for a parent to be vulnerable around their child, because if I don't have the answer for my kid then what's wrong with me? Mm. If I can't figure this out as a parent, what does that say about me as a parent? Goosebumps. Because you're a parent. I 100% agree with you. Speaking as a parent, you know, and especially like being raised in a, in a culture, cultural household, Eastern European, there's no emotions. Like you, Dad's got to solve the problems. The mom is dependent on dad. Yeah. And that's okay. That's how life goes on. Um, and vulnerability doesn't 
really exist. I'm not here to be vulnerable with my kid. My kid is here to be vulnerable with me and I'm here to be the sounding board and just give advice and fix the problem. Because I'm here to make your life better than mine was right. because that's yes. my job. Yes. My job as a parent is to take what I've learned from the mistakes and the heartache that life has thrown my way and to save you from that. So it is biologically built in a parent to protect their child and I'm going to ask you to change the way you do that, that takes time. Oh, absolutely. I, one other thing, I agree with the, the notion that my role as a parent is to make your life less complicated or not, I wouldn't say easier, but different from the way that the, the negative things that affect my less. life, right? How I do that yes. is the thing we need to focus on doing differently. And we can't focus on how you do that until yeah. we talk about why you're doing it. A hundred percent. Goosebumps. I am so, again, <laughs> I could just, it's, it's so simple, it's so, but it's so but complicated. it's so complicated because we're humans and I, we're scared and we love. Oh, it's, and I think what we're also working with is we're asking people to face their shame. We're asking, which is the hardest thing yeah. to work through if you, if you don't have the skill or the tools to work through shame, because shame is I'm bad. And if no one taught me as a parent to work through my own shame, I'm going to project all that shame onto you, but it's going to come out as anger. and Or overprotection. Or overprotection. And so speaking of survival mechanisms that you were speaking to before, how is denial a survival mechanism? I mean, in a lot of ways, it's almost biological, right? You get into some sort of a physical accident, you go in shock and you don't even remember what happened. So I want to give denial. It's kind of like, yes, right? Like I think, I think anything that is used to protect us is a good mechanism. It's how we're using that mechanism that's going to differentiate. Is it really protecting the situation or is it actually protecting the dysfunction of the situation? Why would anyone want to protect the dysfunction of the situation? I think there's a lot of reasons, and I don't necessarily know that anybody would consciously choose to deny a situation, but I think that to deny it would be, it's too overwhelming. I have too much going on as a parent. I have other kids. It's affecting everything. I'm now traumatized. I have to go to work. I got to make money. I got to keep a roof over her head. Like there's so many basic needs, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like Maslow said, right? Like there's just the basic survival needs. And to some degree, denial is so deeply embedded within that individual that they've been denying their own right. humanness and or pain for so long that to ask them to be conscious and engage with their own pain is going to take a minute. I mean, if you've been doing something for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, oh, yeah, right? I can't is expect the, a shift immediately. <laughs> for use of the wrong word, is there hope for people like that? I would not be doing what I do for a living if I didn't believe in hope. I'm not, I don't believe in fantasy. But I believe in hope. And if you change, if A plus B equals C, A is the family, B is the client, and C is the result, if I can't help that client change, then I'm going to help that family change, and we're going to get a different result. Mm. I think the biggest um, 
fear or not fear, but safeguard that a lot of people use is, well, I've been doing it for so long. Mm. I'm so used to it. I'm 60. I can't change. I'm 50. I'm whatever the reason is. Or I'm 20. I still have another 60 years ahead of me. What's the point of changing now? Right. So it's like it, it goes back to time and, and where they are on that spectrum and the willingness to change and using that as an excuse. Right. Mm -hmm. And I love what you just said. It, it doesn't matter where you are. There's hope for everybody there. And hope is followed by will. Right. The will to change, the want to change needs to be needs to be strong and then you don't need the hope anymore because the will is strong enough right yeah and the beliefs you know the beliefs and the values that are governing the thoughts that are governing the actions that are creating the decisions in life right, right. all of that is equally important and mm -hmm. and i agree with you and yet what's your motivation for change so if you're going to call me and tell me that you're afraid that your kid's going to die and yet you're unwilling to do anything different, then I'm going to ask you, what is your motivation for calling me then? Mm. That was going to be my next question is, how do you know when a family is at the stage where they're willing to change? They start listening differently. They start asking different questions. I, I do want to say this on behalf of families over the past seven years, in really working strongly within family systems, I would say that over 90% of the families that I have worked with are 100% willing to change. They want to do the work. It's just about how they're invited to do the work. Mm. I, I love that you said that. And I love that you used the word invited. It's, yeah, it's such a it's such because we're not telling you what to do. I'm inviting you into the experience and yeah. we're all working together to create this outcome that we all want. It reminds me of this uh, this man I was working. I was working with one of his mm -hmm. kids and I think the kid was I say kid. That makes me feel old now that I can say kid, kids in their 20s or kids. Anyway, uh, he started crying because he didn't know how to work through the guilt of the harm that he felt he caused his kid. He felt like he created yeah. his kid's addiction yeah. and it broke my heart. I was also proud of him for wanting to even look at how has his unconscious behaviors contributed to his kid. So to speak to the, the family member who is working through that piece, do you feel like a parent is responsible for their kid's addiction? Do I feel like a parent can contribute to some unhealthy behaviors? Yes. I love how you phrased that. Me Do too. I feel that a parent is responsible for their child's addiction? I don't know. Are you buying them drugs? Mm. Right. Are you letting them use heroin? Are you saying it's okay that they smoke cannabis, even though they could potentially go into a psychotic episode and not return? So I have a lot of questions. The most important question I have is I'm curious where that parent learned that as a parent, that you're responsible for everything your child does. Oh I want to have that conversation. I want you to as well. I want to have that, right? <laughs> I want to have that conversation. What's your phone number? What's the, what's the 800 number they can call? <laughs> I want to have that conversation. And I think that's such an important, it's so important the way you phrased that because mm -hmm. for the parent that I was just describing, staying in that mindset can, can keep him stuck in that room of guilt and it can prevent any change from happening in the family. Mm -hmm. And so asking those questions and maybe also what if there is that parent who's buying their kid 
I know that there are parents mm-hmm. who buy their kids. They'd rather them be using in their home rather, I'd rather than going than, on the street. At least I know where they are. Right. What do you think about that? At least I know where they are. What I think about it is how you raise your children is none of my business. What I think about addiction and the potential for your, especially in 2023, when cannabis has strands and strain. I mean, we are not, you know, I, I'm in recovery. When, when I was smoking pot in the 70s, you know, I ate too many brownies and I, like, fell asleep and right. laughed till my face hurts. Now I have 20-year-olds in psychiatric units with continued cannabis use that will never return to the cognitive functioning that they had prior to that use. Mm -hmm. So what I say is, let's have a conversation about educating you so that what you're standing in is actually aligned with your belief system for your child. If at the end of the day, you're okay with that, I'm not here to judge you. Yet, be aware of the consequences of what you're allowing the people that you love to participate in and and then go from there. I, I think that's all that I really want to say about it because because it's legal now. So systemically, we've given permission for substances to be used, and then the parents got to go against the very system. So it's such a, a challenge right now. Well, and then at the same time, you're also met with, uh, well, I like to drink, but I don't consider myself an alcoholic. I can tell myself that it's fine. Why can't my child figure that out? Are you experiencing the same negative consequences that your child is as a result of your engagement with that substance? I, I think I think you hit it on the nail. It, it, it's all about education, right? And every case is completely different, yes. right? And that's why I don't think that, yes, all parents are to blame. And then, oh well, yeah, all schooling systems are to blame. Or social media is to blame. There's so many facets that create a human being these days and and the and their egos and their personalities and their fears and their everything, right? So it's not just a parent thing, but the parent is a contributor, right? And it's about, you know, your role as that the 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 coach and the and the the savior and whatever however you wanna call it, to educate that individual about what their boundaries or the lack thereof is creating. A hundred percent. And I love when you, and and talk about denial, right? There we go. Blame is denial. Mm. Talk about a lack of accountability, right? Recovery from anything requires accountability. If I'm eating too many jelly beans, for God's sakes, and I have a stomach ache, then I need to be accountable for the fact I'm eating too many jelly beans. Right. Accountability is critical. <laughs> Are you eating a lot too of jelly, many beans? jelly beans? <laughs> no, this is me raising my hand to talk because I really loved what you just said. I've done this since I was little. Maybe it's because I grew up and like we all interrupted each other. So I was like, sir. It's my turn. They do that at my office. Yeah. I'm like, why are you guys raising your hands? Like the talking, I have like the talking pillow. See, I never raised my hand in class. I, I think that was the problem. You I, just started talking? Yeah. See, my parents needed to force that into me. Did you say in the front row or the back row? Uh, always in the back. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, always. Is that a thing? Like sitting? Oh, with, it's a thing. What's the thing? There's a thing. What's Good. is the thing though? I feel like if you're in the front, you're more eager and willing, and you and you're like to accept the information and participate in a healthy way. If you're in the back, you know you're going to create mischievous actions, 100%. and that you just don't want to get caught. So, <laughs> I I mean, I, I was, love it. I, yeah. I think I, I've my psychoanalyzed whole, myself. No, it makes thoroughly. Sense. My whole life has been a process from the back row to the front row. <laughs> That's right. Right? Actually, like at every right? event that I would ever see you at, you would always be in the front now. It's and been I, a process. I learn. used to be in the back row. Right. You know, like ruining my Throwing life. Throwing like 
But what were you going to say? I want to hear. <laughs> Jelly beans. You Jelly said beans. that blame is denial. Okay. How Blame is a lack of accountability. Blame is a lack of accountability. And I want to go into that subject because there's no healing if we blame each other. Correct? Correct, because I'm in a constant state of victimization, thus leaving myself disempowered. So if we have someone listening to this who is constantly blaming their spouse, their family member, their grandparent, their mom, their dad, their cousin, why would they be doing that? Well, one, I think it's a defense mechanism that maybe they're unaware of. Two, I think probably a lot of times when we blame people for things, there's some reality to the blame, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. you, yeah, you did just step on my foot, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think it's just people wake up and go, you're wrong. I think that there's engagement and relational challenges that are going on. And yet to get to solutions for me in any relationship, I need to be accountable for my part. So how do you teach, what would be the first step to teach someone to be accountable for their behaviors? Well, let's look at your behaviors first. And how are they contributing to the problem? So we need to look at the crisis. What is the crisis? Why are you here? And then let's look at who's contributing to the crisis and in what ways. And then from there we can go, he just raised his hand. <laughs> I'm just going to start raising You're going to have to tap my shoulder because I can't see. That is all. Look, I'm like, yes, Arthur. <laughs> me, 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 me. <laughs> I actually love that sweatshirt. I don't know if you're flicking me off or, or what's. Yes, Arthur. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit of mental health without some laughter. Uh, I can't God, laugh. We need to all. laugh more. Yeah, we need to laugh more. We. We do. So we need to laugh. laugh more. That's we why I try and make funny TikToks. Yes. To laugh, but more. not laugh to escape. No. Right. Denial. Because laughter is Denial. right. Right. Yeah. Comedians Drove. out there. Or don't, not be sarcastic don't. and dismissive. Like, oh, that's just how he acts, Angela. Right. Yeah. That's what he does all the time. He lies. Right. Ooh. That's, that's just good, who that's he a, is, Angela. He lies. But don't you <laughs> raise your hand? I'm raising my hand. <laughs> that, right? Because I, I think that's what families do all the time. And they're all laughing. They, I said to a dad the other day, I, wait, you just told me that your kid lies all the time? Yeah, all the time. Well, why are we laughing about the fact that your kid is dishonest all the time? Right. Whoa, well, that's just how Ted is. <laughs> What does that even mean? That's I, a sign family rules, right? There's a whole, there we go. Oh my God. So <laughs> Wait, hold on, hold on. But it's. I wanna, I wanna, hold on. Go for it. Okay, really quickly. Hold on. Because you just. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have fun here. We just keep going deeper. <laughs> you said family roles. And one of the questions I really was excited to ask you was when one person changes their role, in the system, what happens to the rest of the oh, system? Oh, that's when I get excited, right? Brass tacks loves disruption. Yet, we don't disrupt until we have enough clinical and safety support systems in place, right? Don't just go in and blow up a family system. That's irresponsible and unprofessional. Once everything's in place to support that family's shift, then begin. What happens? I get excited because change is happening. When a mom who doesn't speak because maybe dad or vice versa is the voice in the family and suddenly on a call she says, no, I agree with that. Wow. Yeah, that's huge. That's big. Have you ever, have you ever, uh, <laughs> thanks for picking on me. Um, <laughs> 
have you ever experienced a situation where you had multiple parties within a family system and you saw change in some and not others? Yeah. And then there was jealousy, resentment, there was anger being built because of that. Like, how did you circumvent those situations? Yeah, because I think what's happening for the family members that aren't changing is they're feeling a sense of betrayal. Mm. Oh, Damn. Right? Damn, you are dropping the mic. <laughs> like we we decided we're gonna be this way subconsciously against this our kids our or pact. family, and doing? now you just left me. Yeah, what are wow, you doing? It's chills. Right? So then there's so then we need to turn our attention to the ones that feel betrayed and have that conversation right. about that. Because you know what? In all relationships, career romantic anything we unconsciously agree to things that are okay you know like if i live with you and you brush your teeth while you're standing by it, we've agreed that that's okay because i didn't right. say hey go brush your teeth over there right so we've got this agreement and then suddenly one day you go to stand by me and brush your teeth and i'm like why don't you go to your sink wait what happened right so it's a funny example. My families know they always crack up at my metaphors, but but it's poignant, right? Because if we've agreed on how this family is going to operate and suddenly we're going to change this, where's that going to leave somebody out? And I'm asking you to make changes in how you protect yourself as an individual within this system. And now I'm scared. Mm. I'm scared now. Mom used to not do that. That's not what happened. It may be unhealthy, but at least I know where the dots are. Now you're moving the dots. Where do I go within myself? So that's why having the support systems in place for each of the family members is so critical before we begin to help them shift that because somebody could really be left out. And that's, that's heartbreaking. How often as a professional do you take inventory of where the families are at? Every <laughs> like I, re I my workaholism I, is like, I'm working on it. So, like I'm on the toilet <laughs> no, taking inventory no. constantly. Hey, listen, constantly. Work gets done yeah, on the throne, a lot of okay? shit gets lot, done while you're shitting. literally right. Don't say that. Don't word. say shit. Can't, can't use that word. A bad word. <laughs> See, you used it in both ways. One way is okay, and the other was not. So how do we edit that out? Yeah. No. So I really segueing it because obviously I wish we had like. 10 hours to talk to. There's a lot of mind blowing going on here. Um, I really want you to go over your process with the families because the people who are listening, like I want them to understand what it's like to work with an organization like Brass Tax and to work with Angela, right? Um, and because there's a lot of fear in the initial stage of reaching out. Usually people reach out when it's too late, when there's crisis, you know, whatever. It's like, I, I want there to be more of an education on like, this is how we work. This is why we kind of set up it this way to make the process as easy and smooth as possible. Can you, I mean, <laughs> when you just broad. asked that, I actually had, I, I felt sad and I was just oh, kind of going, wait, what? No, your question wasn't sad. I was thinking about the families that by the time they get to us, because they've had our average families anywhere from three to 13 treatment episodes. Mm. What? Yeah. Wait, say that again. The average family that calls Brass Tax Recovery has three to 13 treatment episodes. So that's a wide range, right? But even if you're getting to the third, you're already like, why is it taking I the say third? we probably land somewhere between four and seven. Right. That's, on the high end. That's heartbreaking. Okay, so, so let's go to the solution orientation. Like, so. Yeah. If we go to what is the process, we customize. Where do we start? I just want to talk. 
I really just want to have a conversation. And then after we're retained, we start with a family perspective assessment. I want to know the family's perspective of their loved one because they need to get that out of them and they need to know that I, I'm hearing what they're saying. I also want letters from the parents. Sometimes I'll ask the mom to write a mom letter. I want a dad letter. I want a letter from them. If you could say whatever you wanted to say, what would you say? Mm. And not just in an intervention or a Johnson model intervention that has a consequential boundary when we're trying to motivate someone to go in. That That's a different modality. But I want I want to get to know who they are because the more that I know them as people, the better I can support their child. So then the process, it just forks in the road to anywhere, depending on what they need. Am I intervening for a day, two days, two months, four months? Um, am, if I'm doing a CTI where I'm coaching to intervene, that family system, we're doing that interve intervention from a month up to a four-month, five-month, six-month period with acute mental health if there's schizophrenia. and So there's so many things to sure. consider. But then we're going to go into customizing a clinical team around them establishing their financial resources, what can they do? Mm -hmm. Especially if they have seven previous treatment episodes. And then right. where are we going to recommend? Why are we recommending those places? And then looking at a long-term plan. So we're looking at six months to a year with every family who comes on board with us. They may not be here with me that long. Most of them are with us for about a year to 18 months. But if they're only with me for two months, I'm already looking at 18 months down the line in how I can educate them to be beneficial for them all the way through the process. Mm -hmm. And in an ideal situation is the um, conflicting uh, the, the patient or the client that's struggling. Uh, is it ideal for them to be in treatment during the beginning process while you're working with the families? Can they, do they have to be in treatment? Do they not have to be in treatment? They do not have to be in treatment. Okay. Do I want them depending on safety assessment? On where they're at. Of, yeah, course. of course. Do I want them in treatment? What level of care? I review all levels of care with families. We discuss, I don't give any insurance advice, but we discuss the benefits of insurance and sure. where is it helpful in the process? Where would you want to utilize your insurance? to maximize that Absolutely. and where do you want to save your resources for perhaps the aftercare and the longer term plan so we're going to consider all of that on the front end with them as well why is long-term care so important because i think families aren't educated so they don't understand that going to treatment for 30 days is enough mm -hmm. 30 days seems like a long time to be away from your family and away from your job and all of that and yet being Healthy in a contained environment is anybody can do that if people are watching you and supporting you. But what happens when you go back home? What happens when you're triggered? What happens when you smell something that smells familiar? What happens when you have to deal with a challenge or a problem? So long-term care, in my opinion, is absolutely the most important aspect of creating change in an individual who's struggling with mental health and substance abuse. And how important is community for the family and for the one who's in treatment when they leave treatment? Probably in the top three, four things. Well, because it's I constantly... so important. Well, I, yeah. And the reason I ask that is because a lot of parents are in this phase of shame that no other family is going through this. So where can families go? So you have brass tacks, recovery. 
what are other things that families can be doing to support themselves? They can go to support groups, right? You can go to Al-Anon. There's numerous support groups that we give them. There's reading materials. There's coaching. There's NAMI for mental health issues. Mm -hmm. There are tons of resources out there. And I do want to say something because I love your community question. Unhealthy thrives in isolation. Mm. Healthy thrives in connection. Alcoholism, addiction, and mental health have a tendency. Those components will isolate an individual in a family system where recovery will connect them to others. There is nothing to be ashamed about if somebody you love is struggling with substance use or mental health issues. We are all struggling in some way. Do you think things are getting better or staying the same as, as they've always been regarding that topic of shame around mental health? I think that we are doing a better job at minimizing the stigma. I think we are doing a better job at normalizing that we're all having a hard time. And as much as I was terrified by it, as we all were, and I didn't like it, the pandemic really leveled the playing field where we were all allowed to be afraid. Mm, We were given permission to be afraid. And again, I don't like that. And yet we all were able to connect and be afraid. Mm. You know, we don't want to stay in that. And yet it was permissive in the human experience to allow us to experience or to have a relationship Mm. with vulnerability and the lack of control that I don't think we've had as right. as a species in right. a long time. Well, to be okay with saying I'm a, I'm I'm afraid. I'm not okay. Yeah, and I'm not okay. I'm not okay. Like that. I think it, it, it's humans are very very simple but very complicated at the same time, and it's like we we do things in bunches where uh, the, the FOMO, right. The fear of missing out, right. Well, everybody's saying that they have depression. I got to say I have depression. It's okay for me to come out and say it as well. And I think like the, one of the positive things about COVID that happened is that like you said, everybody now understands what it's like to be, to have that feeling of depression, the lack of connection with the true lack of connection that you have with your partner. Right. Because now you actually have to live with them for three months and can't escape. Right. It's like, so there's commonalities and now everybody's talking about it. And it's like, oh, okay, like, okay, now it's safe for me to come out of the the hidden cave that I've been hiding in for, for, for such a long time. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's a huge piece. I, I, I want to segue really quickly to mental health and I, and, and obviously within your own expertise, I mean, none of us are medical professionals, mm-hmm. but because mental health is on the, on the rise because the awareness of mental health, I've seen commercials left and right for tons of different things regarding mental health. Governments are funding projects left and right. There's tons of money being poured in. So obviously the need is there. When it comes to medication management and medical care with mental health, like I'm seeing commercials like HERS, I don't know if you've seen that commercials where now you can just order a script online. I don't know what the process is with them or, or hymns um, where it's easy to now access medication care. When you have a family that comes to you and says, uh, well, let's just our psychiatrist prescribe these meds or why don't we just have them go to a doctor and get medications? Like what's your approach with families, uh, you know, in those types of situations? That's such a great question. I call it uh, pharmaceutical vending machines, okay. right? <clears throat> um what I want families to understand is that medication is important when it's needed. Right. And I absolutely support it. And I'm not a doctor. And 
I also want families to know that medication is only one component of a healing process and that there are other ways that that individual needs to tend to themselves and to recover in addition to medication. Medication is fantastic for stabilizing the very things, anxiety, depression, the symptoms of what's going on within the individual. Some people just chemically need medication. I understand that. However, there are therapeutic and clinical ways to help the individual address the emotional dysregulation that's creating the anxiety and the depression and the discomfort. And also, I'd like to say to 2023, it's okay to be uncomfortable, people. <laughs> it's okay to feel weird. It's okay to walk into a room and be like, oh, I feel anxious. You know, we all do. Yeah. Yeah. I love this subject. And I too, I'm not a doctor. And I also have certain opinions. And I'm, I'm curious around this idea of over pathologizing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I feel like people use their diagnosis as an excuse to not get better. And I'm curious if you have any experience around that. My suggestion is that I think that people with diagnosis remember that one, it's a diagnosis, it's not your identity. Mm. And two, it's not a reason not to do different work. And I think three is the human being that you are and the goals that you have should never be limited by anything that you are diagnosed. I want to, two hands. You're, okay. Arthur, would you like to talk? No, 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 I want to commend you for saying that. Yeah. And I, I wish that psychiatrists and doctors that diagnose say exactly what you said after they make their diagnosis. And some do, but most don't right. from my experience. And I understand that each of us look at a human being in a different capacity. And I'm blessed that I get to pull the pieces together of like, oh, I want this psychiatrist you know, this psychiatrist is amazing and this clinician and this clinical team or, you know, your treatment facility, right? Like there's, I love that I get to be in that position. And yet I do want to invite parents and everybody who's on medication to understand that you don't have to be medication or not medication. You can be medication and I want to work on my spiritual life and I want to work and learn to prioritize my life and I want to work on my emotional dysregulation and I want to like take some leaps and some, I, I want to grow. So I don't think a diagnosis is an excuse. Be careful what you attach yourself to as you define yourself in this world mm -hmm. would God, be I my answer. I love that. Be careful of what you attach yourself to. As you define yourself in this world, that's my answer to that. That is really important important because I, I hear these sentences all the time. Oh, she's just emotional because she's bipolar. Oh, she's just emotional because she's borderline. Ah, oh, he's just acting that way because he's a narcissist. And they just leave it at that. Mm -hmm. And I don't like it. Well, neither do I. <laughs> look, I like, I look, there's big topics about this world that maybe I'm not in complete alignment with around certain big funded companies that that do things sure. but that's that's not my business what is my business is the person who's in front of me i want to educate them and i want them to understand that they are not limited by anything in this world and that you get to be who you are just keep yourself safe do try not to hurt yourself try not to hurt anybody else and are they borderline i mean are they mm. or maybe do you need 
an incredibly sophisticated, savvy, attachment-focused internal family systems therapist that's going to help you heal the part of you that feels like you can't regulate your emotions when things are uncomfortable. Right. And the DSM might not agree with this, but a lot of people would say that a lot of the diagnoses are attachment wounds. I said it, but if someone gets mad at me, someone gets mad at me. I say it all day long, too. I think that that's missed, and brilliant clinicians understand that the way that we are raised and how we attach to the very caregivers in our lives is going to determine how we attach to money, relationships, yeah. love, career, success. 100%. It's a real thing. So I just want us to pay attention to that more in the mental health industry. I cannot wait to have people hear that part. I actually really can't wait for everyone to listen to this entire episode. You said Thank you. so many yeah. things that I want people to listen to on replay, that how you attach to your families is how you attach to money, everything that you attach to later on in life. Yeah. And so I actually think it, it, it provides more hope for people because I think it provides people with more a possibility to change something that if you don't like something the way that it is, well, let me look at how I'm attached to it and why I'm attached to it. And what was my relationship with money growing up? What did I learn about money growing up? What did I learn about romance growing up? What did I learn about this and this and my attachment to this? What did I up? learn about me growing up? Yeah. What did I learn about me? Right. I attachment is something I understand personally because my mother left when I was three. So what it, what message did that give me about me? And how did that create the way that I attach to things? So what did I learn about me when I was growing up? That's the conversation I want to have with everybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you have enough space? No. I, I want to ask you a personal question. Okay. Okay. Transition. This is, this has to do with mental health, but I'm more my, my own curiosity. To a partnership, from a partnership mm -hmm. to sole ownership. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about your transition. You went there. I did went there. I, I, I really want to, not, I don't need the, the no, deep, I, I'm, talk, I'm talking about you yeah. personally, like your brand, everything that you, I mean, brilliant podcast, but I really want, the people to know you just a little bit more personally in your own transition through that process. I think a transition, I think transition should be honored more. Yeah. I mean, it depends on which transition, obviously they 100%. can go the other direction too. Yeah. Right. Um, I think it was an incredibly powerful transition for me as, as an owner, as a woman, mm. a, a, a really, a, as a woman, it was huge because I was able to look at a lot of beliefs that I had even around myself and where mm. those stem from. I think it was sad to some degree because when you begin something and you build it with someone, there's always an honoring. Like I have a lot of, of space of gratitude and I honor anything that I get to do with anyone at any given time because we contributed to each other's lives and together what we built contributed to the lives of others. Right. Um, it was, there were moments where I, I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> do I want to do this? Mm -hmm. Do I really want to do this? Mm -hmm. And then just knowing that for me, brass tacks felt like a baby that I had, I had, I had brought into the world. And for me, it was like, I had to ask myself a question. Am I okay watching my kid just run off into the sunset and maybe wear two different colored shoes? And I got to be like, yeah, that's okay with me. Or am I like, like, I want to have some say over that. Right. So it was a beautifully, it was deep. It was hard for me. 
And in the end, it was incredibly beneficial. Mm. Thank you for your vulnerability yeah. around that. You're welcome. I, I just thank you as woman to woman. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. Yeah. Transitions are so overwhelming. And I think the more we openly talk about how challenging it can be, it actually becomes less challenging. Yeah. The weight gets lifted off of us. And for anyone that's listening, give yourself permission to talk about the overwhelm, to talk about the transition, like you said. And the sadness, right? Mm. Like, oh, that's change. Oh, I kind of miss that. Like, oh, okay, you know, and it's, uh, and then it's business. And then you doubt yourself, like, should I be feeling this way? And it's like, no, you should be feeling the way you're feeling. And now you get to choose how you respond to the way you're feeling. Oh, mm. I just love that. Yeah. Speaking of getting personal. <laughs> I, think, I, I don't think it was the question. I don't think it was a statement. It was the pause. <laughs> the after pause the, after the where breath, I was like, where? Speaking I, of. I felt my body I, I, go, do I need, do we need to protect? Do we need to protect? Yeah. Defense, defense, defense. Defense mechanisms. It's... No, not at all. <laughs> I want to hear because I love what is how your social security you number? <laughs> um, if you could go back to talk to little Angela and say one thing to her, as words of wisdom and hope, what would you say to her? Take risks and make mistakes. Mm. Yes. I love that. Take risks and make mistakes. Mm -hmm. Thank you That's for beautiful. saying that. Yeah. And the other thing I want to ask is because you are a professional and badass woman in this world. Thank you so much. No, I, I really admire you and respect everything you said today. I've learned a lot and I really appreciate it. Um, how do you take care of your mental health today? Mm -hmm. How do you take care of uh, compassion fatigue that exists? And how do you know when to take breaks? I don't think I did, um, honestly. <laughs> I'd love to say, yeah. I'd How many missed still... calls did you have during this podcast that 100%. you're going to have to get like, back on? <laughs> I, I, I don't. Anybody who knows me knows I don't do great self-care because I love what I do. Like, I love this crazy stuff. And I love the passion. I, I just, I believe in what we're doing. I believe in what we're doing. So my self-care, I continue to work on it. I'm getting better. But maybe I'm boxing. That, but maybe that is part of self-care. I'm boxing. There you go. Love boxing. I mean, how do you think I... Sorry, that's that's a bad way to sell mixed martial arts and boxing is like my broken finger. Um, but I, I love what you said. I love what I do. Maybe that is a form of self-care. Well, I think about that. I've been exploring that lately because people will kind of give me a lot of like, oh, you need to you work too much. And the other day I stood up for myself in the moment and I went, what if I love what I do? Mm. Yeah. You know, and my friend was like, oh, and I, because he was kind of, he kept challenging me on it. And then, and I got a little irritated and then I went, but I'm okay. Like, I think I that's like him this. himself challenging his own notion and what he's doing in his career and projecting yes. that onto you. Onto me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you're so smart. I don't, I don't really know you're who so this smart. person was, but <laughs> just psychoanalyzing here for a quick second. It's true. Though. I apologize if it's somebody I know. Uh, I'm just joking. 
uh angela we have to have you on here again we can definitely have this conversation going on for hours i think there's a lot to digest here i uh, my next curious question is what is pivot but that's going to be for our next uh podcast we might just have a podcast on pivoting on pivoting pivoting adjusting and being flexible no i think it's a little bit more than that right so it's like it's an actual yes uh, sorry i was thinking of the word pivot which is like pivoting which is why in the, she chose the name pivoting right. in family systems we're just going to edit that entire section out of this podcast so. <laughs> no we're going to keep that in and rachel's going to get exposed i am not bad i make mistakes <laughs> where can people find you yes oh thank you for asking yeah uh www.brasstax recovery.com why don't you go ahead and close us out arthur no 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 yes I forgot what this, I haven't done a podcast in. Oh, in, for in the love three. of God. It's been a month. <laughs> well, we want to thank Angela again for coming on the show. We really appreciate your time. And, and thank you to all our listeners out there. We appreciate the comments, the feedback, the suggestions, the mm. questions. Please rate, review, comment anywhere you get your podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. And we look forward to hearing from you guys and seeing you guys on the next one. You're Thanks, incredible. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, you guys. I had a really good time with you. Thank Absolutely. you.